Hey everybody, Joe here from the Lines Led by Donkeys podcast, but uh, I guess you probably already knew that. If you like what we do here on the show, consider supporting us on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash donkeys. Just $5 per month gets you every regular episode early, access to our community Discord, a digital copy of my book, The Hooligans of Kandahar, as well as its audiobook, read by me, and over five years of bonus content. By supporting the show, you support us and allow us to keep our show as it has always been ad-free. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Lions of by Donkeys podcast. I'm Joe, and with me deep in the content caves in the sunny islands of England is Tom. What's up, buddy? Bro, it's so fucking cold today. <laughs> yeah, same. Uh, it is cold, uh, but the sky is blue. Uh, so not that that helps at all. Um, but there's your, there's your weekly Dutch weather report. I mean, like, yeah, you, uh, saw in the production chat like yesterday or was it Monday when I got home, I realized that like, oh, my, my, uh, boiler had like depressurized. So I had to like look up the manual for this particular boiler to figure out how to repressurize it so it could have hot water then realized the radiators aren't working. <laughs> and like when I moved into the this place like during the summer, I was like, okay, I was like, did kind of a check of like, okay, here's all the stuff I need to do. And like one of them what on my list was I needed to reseal the windows before the winter. And like I know people say like, oh, you could just get your landlord to do that. But I'm also like, I know what landlords are like and I'm honestly not interested in waiting six weeks for someone to show up with a caulking gun. Yeah, anybody who says, oh, don't worry, your landlord could do that. Like, maybe they're, they live somewhere where landlords are, like, legally liable to do things like that. But I know, coming from, coming from either here and from what I've heard uh, in, in the Netherlands, they're not going to do that. And, <laughs> and from any, any single person I've spoken to that lives in the UK, your landlord is more likely just to throw you out. <laughs> like, honestly, I, I know I could get the landlord to fix it. But it's like with the boiler thing, it was like, I could ring the uh, agent and say, like, this needs to be fixed, or I could just figure out how to do it myself and, like, probably do it quicker and better than someone they would hire. And, like, resealing the windows is that you're just going in with caulk and, like, going in with waterproof caulk and, like, just going around the windows and I have to install curtains and all this shit. So, yeah, I'm... This is the most restrained I've ever been, not making a cock joke right there. Um, everybody mark it on their calendars. It won't happen a second time. Um, anybody who's been paying attention knows that uh, Tom was uh, was just here in the Netherlands, and we were actually supposed to record while he was here. Uh, but there's a reason why. Of the times that we've met, it's been for two days at a time. Um, because anything beyond that two days, we are no longer functional. Because all we do is live off of Guinness and Donner kebab. Uh, and by day three, we're both handicapped. Like, we I, can't move. I had the worst heartburn on Sunday because, like, pretty much all I'd eaten for about three days at that stage was Capsalon. And, like, dr- like on Sunday, I realized I haven't drank any water in 24 <laughs> hours. Similarly, when we were in Ireland, we lived off of street food in Guinness. Um, and by the end of it, I went from Ireland to to Georgia, um, Tbilisi, not Atlanta. And uh, <laughs> I was laying in bed, dying from I like I like Guinness, I like street food, 
However, I am in my mid thirties and my body's like, nope, you're, you're going to die now. Uh, everything hurts when I'm dying. <laughs> I have recovered from the weekend. Um, I am shocked though that that pub that we went to had better Guinness than I've ever had in London. It's because the bartenders are all Irish. <laughs> yeah, true. You know, can't, can't go anywhere and not like, why do you think they're like, where can we watch the rugby match? I'm like, I know the place because everyone sitting behind the bar has an Irish accent. And it was like when I was in Prague a couple of weeks ago and similarly had to find somewhere to watch the Ireland-South Africa match. And I was like Googling like, oh, sports bars in Prague. And like most of them were just showing the soccer. But I, fe- I figured out that there was two Irish bars that were showing the rugby. The first one we went into was just like so busy. And then the second one was like full of English stags, but managed to find like a table where I could sit down and watch the match. And like... it. <laughs> They were so pissed off with the English stags that they just said the bar is cash only now. Our card machines aren't working. <laughs> Wait, do do Irish people call football soccer, or have you just been recording for too long with me? No, no, it's it's referred because uh, Gaelic football is just referred to as football uh, back home. Um, but was at that bar and like got talking to one of the bartenders and because like she was serving me and I was trying to be nice to people because like honestly. There was so many people being just extremely rude. So I was like, I'll be nice. Um, and I asked her, I was like, oh, where are you from back home? She was telling me. And she was like, oh, you're from Wexford. There's another guy from Wexford behind the bar. And I was like, all right. Turns out the guy's from the same town as me. <laughs> Once again, this just goes back to me. When I went to Ireland, I ran into the one Irish Armenian customs office there. Like, where well, we we are empire baby <laughs> this is you know Ireland, irish people and armenians are the same people just just switch out like uh, cognac for guinness and we're the same there now you go. speaking of something that has nothing to do with any of that um we have a podcast to record and we're we're, we're going to jump on our little podcast airplane and travel back to hawaii which is a place that we don't talk about very much on the show which is interesting because about two and a half years of this show's history was recorded on Oahu. Um, Though if there's one thing we love on this show more than just about anything else, it's idiot colonists fucking around and finding out in the most violent way possible. Which brings us to an episode of history that is probably more famous in Hawaii than anywhere else. And that is the death of a man named James Cook. Um, have you ever heard of this guy before? Uh, I we've we've talked we wrote this a long time ago, so I'm not sure. Have you ever heard about James Cook and uh, and the Hawaiian way to celebrate Valentine's Day? Um, I this is actually like the perfect crossover between both our shows. Like, obviously, my show Beneath the Skins about the history of tattooing, and James Cook is kind of an integral part in the history of tattooing because of his you know adventures in the pacific mm-hmm. um but i'll mm. get into it a lot more later on when we talk because i, w- I want to talk i want to go nate mode i know everyone's missing nate right now so i have like an eight minute diatribe about uh captain james cook and the history of tattooing but uh I- i'm very familiar with how they celebrate valentine's day in hawaii outstanding now before we get to how james cook got connected to God's Wi-Fi in the funniest way possible, we have to talk about the islands of Hawaii in the 1700s. And for Americans who don't know, my mom, there's a lot of different islands in the, 
<laughs> that make up Hawaii. There isn't just one. Um, uh, like, recent- is, is there? There's the big island. There's the medium island, and then there's the small, and the small island. island. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> that's it. That's the that's the whole island chain. Now, at this point, the islands were not unified by King Kamehameha the Great. You might know him as an attack from Dragon Ball Z. Yes, um, the inspiration for Goku's <laughs> ultimate attack. It, do you reckon there's some Hawaiian king who inspired the spirit bomb? Yeah, he he's a guy who likes standing in one place for a really long time while the animators try to figure out what to do next. <laughs> Captain James Cook got killed by TN's tri-beam. Tri yeah, chief filler episode. Um, now... This that's another subject we will talk about at some point. That is the unification of Hawaii, not Dragon Ball Z. Uh, <laughs> generally, at this point, each island had its own chief with different subchiefs under him, ruling districts and villages. Generally speaking, though, each island was a little bit different. These chiefs ruled as dynasties, and most of the different island dynasties were interrelated owing to the fact that many people believe these rulers were descendants of the legendary parents, Waikea, symbolizing the air, and Papa, rep- symbolizing the earth. Though it should be pointed out this was not a formalized system, really. One chief's holding could be small, like a village, while others could be a, you know, a district, and others could be an entire island. Over time, each island developed an important set of skills and specialization that they would trade with one another, because... The islands aren't exactly close together, but even before unification, inter-island travel was very, very common. So it makes sense to diversify your economies against your neighbors and specialize in something. This created a pretty complex form of an ununified but interwoven economy. For instance, Oahu specialized in making cloth, Maui in canoe building, and the big island purveyors of dried fish. You know, the thing that we all love to eat. We're about, about to go uh, get some sick-ass uh, 17th century poke bowls. Yeah, it's, it's crunchy. And also, I don't think they had rice yet. So just a bowl, <laughs> just a bowl of dried fish. And, hey, and, de- could, be, could replace the rice with some desiccated coconut. I don't know. That might be a bit sweet. Might fuck with the texture. But if you haven't had poke bowls before, get one. They're really good. And they're good for you. It's the best kind of food. A pile of food, which is my personal favorite. <laughs> I have seen you eat so much capsule on the last week. That's fucking right, baby. Give me that food pile. Now, up until this point, they had not made any proven contact with the non-Polynesian world, though that is heavily debated. And I err on the side of they almost certainly had. Um, mm. Outside of written records, we have plenty of evidence to suggest that the Hawaiian Islands had frequent contact with various kinds of outsiders before the British showed up. For starters, there was so much syphilis. Um, now, uh, yeah, you know, like the Spaniards brought, like, what was it, measles and smallpox to South and Central America. The Brits brought syphilis. Hold that thought about the Spaniards. Oh, um, fuck off. Evidence of syphilis was found in the bones of Hawaiians going back to about the 1600s. And the disease has something of a convoluted origin story. Syphilis is largely thought as a hallmark of Europe in the 14th and 15th centuries, but uh, as well as, you know, literally every nightclub across the continent today. But for a long time, Columbus was blamed for bringing it into Europe for doing um, crimes in the Americas, which I will not go into. Fill in the blanks yourself. 
though there's evidence to suggest it existed in Europe before then and just got worse with time, leading to the epidemic of 1495, which is why everybody thinks this is a European disease, um, which it very well could be. It just was kind of a, you know, it was, it was a slow simmer before then, or before boiling over in the 1495 era. James Cook is generally thought of as being the first European to, quote, discover Hawaii, but that wouldn't be until late 1700s, which we'll talk about. So obviously that doesn't explain, you know, all of the syphilis, which certainly came from the outside. What might answer is the series of shipwrecks off the coast of the island, which according to Hawaiian stories, were, drumroll please, Spaniards. Um, <laughs> they they the crashed Spani- there. You know what? The Spaniards get off pretty light when it comes to colonialism. Obviously, there is a movement to get people to stop celebrating Christopher Columbus. Um, America was discovered by Amerigo Vespucci, or alternatively, the Vikings, if you are going to argue that. You can't fucking discover something that has an indigenous population. It's already I been know. discovered. I know, I know, people I know. People live there. That's like saying I discovered this apartment. <laughs> hey, listen, depend, depending on if you're really into, like, Voltaire and stuff like that, like, does something exist before you see it? What, are you a goldfish? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so, yeah, quote-unquote discovered, but, you know... The Spaniards really, really, really get off lightly when we talk about colonial history. I mean, yeah, I mean, the Spaniards do, especially when you look at like Western histories, as do the Portuguese and even the Belgians, which all of which is completely unfair because they're all bloodthirsty, genocidal ghouls. Mm-hmm. Um, We've talked about Equatorial Guinea on this show. Yeah, we sure have. Um, now, this the Spanish shipwrecks off the coast of Hawaii, like the, the, what is generally thought of, at least within Hawaiian storytelling and within history now, is that they crashed their ships, they washed up on shore, and assimilated into Hawaiian life, doing what they do best, which is spreading STDs. Um, so it could have been with them. But there was also the Japanese, who had shown up at some point during the Kamakura period, and then later again in the 1500s. At that time, it's not as many as 30% of Japanese men suffered from syphilis. So it could have also been them. I guess what I'm saying is welcome to the History of STDs podcast. Um, (laughs) Yeah, like a really interesting, and I'm going to come back to this later on when we start talking about Captain Cook again, is that a lot of the migration among the Polynesian islands is kind of super understudied because... Tattooing, um, which I'll talk a lot more about later on, like it is kind of an almost ubiquitous thing across the Polynesian islands and comes up in like differing forms and particularly like the artistry, how the tattoos are applied and like the individual kind of artistic identity of what the tattoos actually look like. But like Hawaiian tattooing, Tahitian, Maori tattooing, although Damoko is like a little bit different. Um, all kind of originated from kind of one nucleus. It's supposed, it's alleged. So these people, one, were incredible sailors as well. Like the Polynesian people were like, put any age of sail captain to shame. And it's like 12 people on a boat. Take that, James Cook, you dead bitch. Yes, yeah, suck uh. my nuts. But the reason why I go into that is often said that James Cook is the first European to stumble across the Hawaiian Islands. 
probably not true. And even if it was, the Japanese had been there for possibly hundreds of years. Um, for instance, the Hawaiians had metal. Where did that come from, Mr. Cook? Uh, <laughs> probably the Japanese. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Now, James Cook was born in November 1728 in the North Riding era of, of Yorkshire. Fucking British. Is it, nor- is it North Riding or is it Ridding or something stupid no, it's nor- like that? It's North Riding. Got it right the first time and the first time in podcast history. Um, and I have to say, I discover a great new British town name every time I look an Englishman up. Yeah, just but- don't, don't get Joe to try and say Agincourt. Fuck you. That was years ago. Let it go. <laughs> um, he was the second of eight kids born to a Scottish laborer and a British mother. They lived on a land that they worked, and his father's boss eventually paid for Cook to go to school for five years, at which time he was supposed to return to the farm as like slightly more educated into like a managerial role. Um, it wasn't like a formal school. This is pretty much just to teach him how to like read and write. He had no science or mathematics education to speak of, but for all of the flaws that Cook had, being a good student was like not one of them. He just enjoyed learning, so he taught himself science and mathematics, which is kind of impressive for someone in the 1700s. Yeah. He didn't want to, he didn't want to be like his father, and when he was 16, he accepted an apprenticeship to work as a grocer 20 miles away in a fishing village because it was the 1700s, things were different. And being the like the counter guy at a grocery shop and a bag boy required an unpaid apprenticeship, which would have lasted years. Um, it also turned out that despite being a good student, and I assume actually a pretty decent farm hand to be sent to school by, by, by the guy who owned the farm, he was shit at being a grocer and he was fired. Though his boss did have some mercy on him. He introduced him to his friends John and Henry Walker, who owned several coal hauling ships who then offered him a job aboard those ships. Though, this could have actually been a punishment because it's a job above, you know, aboard a, a coal ship in the 1700s. So it could have been like, yeah, you suck as a grocer, go die in a coal ship. <laughs> it turned out he was actually pretty good at this, uh, which was very interesting for the time. Back then, as we've talked about before, most crewmen aboard ships, whether it be commercial, private, military, whatever, they came from coastal towns which had a seagoing tradition, not only in their family, but in local culture. They're not normally some random farm kid, but he did very well. He learned advanced navigational skills, like the kind of things that a seaman needs to know to advance through the ranks and complete his three-year-long apprenticeship going up and down the English coast. From there, he moved on to ships in the Baltics and officially entered the ranks of the Merchant Navy after passing an exam in 1752. And once again, there he excelled, being promoted constantly and was offered the command of his first ship three years later. However, times had changed. Britain was gearing up for the Seven Years' War, and Cook realized, my career would be doing a lot better if I was in the Navy rather than, you know, hauling coal and whale guts or whatever. He quickly volunteered for service and was stationed aboard the HMS Eagle. He took part in several battles, was promoted to bosun, passed some more exams, and the war eventually took him to North America aboard the HMS Pembroke. Yeah, and it's it's super interesting, this part of his career, because like a lot of the myth-making that's been made about Captain Cook is from his own autobiography and his own writings so yeah, he is his own best hype man at this stage he is like landing in newfoundland 
having you know contact with first nations people the kind of inuit people that are around at the time and it's kind of this kind of first contact for him will set out how he writes about you know first nations indigenous people polynesian people that he will contact over the subsequent journeys and there later on there is a thing that i want to bring up that is going to make video game nerds really mad and like people who are like there was no black people in england uh before like the the windrush people i'm like you're dumb you're stupid and you're factually wrong I mean, those people were never, people who think that way are never actually grasping for facts. They're just grasping for, like, white ethno-nationalist history. It's the, it's the same people <laughs> who will, like, argue with me that, like, oh, the Vikings had tattoos. No, the Vikings didn't have tattoos. There is little to no evidence that Vikings actually ever had tattoos or any tattooing practice. It was probably war paint. I lit, Matt literally did, my co-host, literally did an episode the other day about how even Caesar himself, Mr. Julius Caesar, lied about seeing tattooed people. Nice. I like I think Julius Caesar had a lower back tattoo of butterflies. <laughs> Does that just take some of the wind out of his sails, you know? It makes him seem like a like a a, a club uh like teenager from uh, like two thousand five. <laughs> he just had like a Jersey Shore esque lower back tattoo that said Etu Brutus. Fuck yeah. <laughs> now like Tom said, this is where a lot of the mythos from uh, of, of Captain Cook comes in, was surveying and uh, like cartography around the Canadian coast, uh, like the da- mapping the dangerous rocks and cliffs. Um, and these maps were used for a very long time afterwards, so he did do a pretty good job at that. But this brought him the attention of the Royal Society, the kind of people who are normally credited as explorers, with a small asterisk next to that, meaning roving band of murderers, slavers, and criminals to whoever had the misfortune of find them finding them along the way. Yeah, it's nonsense at sea. Yeah, British tradition. So in 1769, Cook was commissioned by the British Admiralty to conduct an expedition into the Pacific. He was promoted to lieutenant and given command of the HMS Endeavour. During this period, he passed through New Zealand, making contact with locals and murdered about eight of them. Afterwards, he went to Australia, did about the same thing, opening fire with a cannon on locals after one of them threw a rock at him. So he's actually the first documented American police officer. And like, so this is where like the chartering of the south, west and east coast of uh, Australia comes about, obviously um, encountering the Aborigines. Um, but this is where Tom's fact corner comes in. So. When Cook landed in New Zealand, now called Aotearoa, um, and encountered the Maori people for the first time, a lot of people think about this is where tattooing was quote-unquote discovered. And in reality, there was like tattooing going on all around the world at the same time because it's not that hard to put ink in skin. You just need something sharp and like some sort of carbon suspended in a liquid so you could have like soot that's like mixed with a suspension liquid and just prick it into the skin but a lot of people think that once uh captain cook encountered the maori people that changed tattooing around the world forever where in reality there's like very little evidence that like cook's encounter encounters with the maori people and like damoko even like changed anything like there's no representation of like 
people and like people will talk about oh you know there was sailors that got like moko tattoos and like came back and like started spreading it was like no they didn't because one that moko is like very sacred to the maori people they actually they see it as something more than just tattooing it has a spiritual connection um another factual inaccuracy is people think this is where the term tattoo comes from because the maori and more so tahitian term which we'll talk about in a second is for tattooing is called tatao because the way the tattoos are applied it's kind of like an awl so it's a straight piece of wood with needles pointed down and you like use a small hammer to like tap the ink into the skin and it's like makes a tatao 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 sound but anyone who has either been in the army or knows anything about the uh, military history joe what is the sound for what is the term for the sound of a marching drum being played Uh, it's called a tattoo yeah yeah so we had that term for a long time before you know cook encountered the maori or aboriginal people well i mean again this isn't that surprising where people are 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 desperate to pack like discoveries and whatnot into like european age of explorers because of like romantic adventurism when Mm. in reality pretty much all they were is a sailing circus of atrocities Mm -hmm. um and like the thing with like the maori people is that like similar to you know like in in other polynesian nations there was kind of like internecine wars going on in between groups Mm. so once merchants and stuff started like making regular journeys to these parts they would you know trade for weapons this sort of thing one of and like one practice was, you know, the the keeping of the head of your defeated enemies. This is where, like, shrunken heads come from. And, like, these are, like, kind of sacred, kind of spiritual objects. And you had people, like, trading them for weapons. And that's how you, like, end up with, like, stuff like shrunken heads in the National Museum in the UK. Yeah. Yeah, of course. They wanted to, like... It's just, like, um, I believe it was that the Germans like to collect skulls and bones even before even before like eugenics was involved. Um, it just happened that was, uh, like they discovered fake science to go along with their like gross collections and they would trade them for things they thought they were like cool things to bring home yeah, or so- like letter openers fashioned out of indigenous bones and shit mm-hmm. like that. This is depressingly common uh, mm-hmm. in history. Though I do have some good news. Isn't there ever any good news on this show? Just this one sentence. Um, On his way home, um, Captain Cook's ship stopped in what is today Jakarta, and a quarter of his crew died of malaria. (laughs) So, yeah, we we do have that bright spot. And they returned home in 1771. He was greeted as a hero in the scientific community, I assume for bombing indigenous people with cannons and was promoted to the rank of commander. Mm-hmm. A year later, he went on another expedition around Australia, fired cans at more locals, and returned home to another hero's welcome and a promotion, and the Royal Navy then retired him, sending him to a desk job at the Greenwich Hospital against his will. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, it's also, like, during this trip that, like, he... M- so, a lot of people think, like, the first person to land was Cook. In reality, like, a lot of credit for this stuff goes to a guy called Samuel Wallace who was also a navigator and at this time in 1767 um 
Cook and Wallace meet this man called Omai, who is, you know, a Tahitian kind of... Oh, we're going to talk about Omai. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. Yeah, so uh, make a long story short, they make contact with Omai and kind of kidnap him and bring him back to the UK. <laughs> yeah. Now, to be fair, Omai was treated like a diplomat when he arrived. There's a very famous, like, portrait of him. That yeah, I think yeah they, they do this frequently. They they treated them kind of like a diplomat, but also as a circus attraction. Yeah, so, like, you had, like, there's this very famous portrait of Omai that was done in... I think it's 75 that used to be hanging in the National Gallery. Um, They also had people, First Nations people from uh, the Americas that came over around the same time as well. So, like, the these people were, like, in the UK and, like, in Europe being treated like dignitaries and tr- being treated with respect. And obviously, like, this is kind of before modern conceptions of racism were invented by the Italians. Well, I mean, they they stick to what they're good at. Um, yeah, we're like, Omai was originally from uh, Ralatayan Island, which is like today French Polynesia. And he was treated as a dignitary. He had his portrait painted. Um, but at the same time, he was treated like, as like an aristocratic party favor. And what is more surprising is that he didn't die from some horrific European turbo disease he wasn't previously accustomed to. But we're going to revisit him in a second because he plays a role into what happens to Cook. Now, at this point, Cook has been forced to retire at the Greenwich Hospital. Um, He was kind of lauded as not only being a great explorer, but a good ship captain because he, did, he was famous for not losing a single man to scurvy, which was dropping sailors left and right back in the day, despite the fact it was very well known and forgotten and then relearned that a diet with citrus and acids would defeat scurvy. This being, you know, lemons, lime, and sauerkraut. Like, you need acids in your body. Somehow, um, and- I'm just, like, shocked that I didn't get scurvy in college. Like, how do, <laughs> how do college students not get scurvy? I don't think I ate a vegetable for, like, three years. See, the, the, the factories that pump out, like, instant noodles make sure to put, like, a drop of lemon juice in them so college students don't lose all their teeth and die. Um, Honestly, nutrient-fortified ramen noodles is a million-dollar idea. Perfect for uh, for college students and sailors. Um, <laughs> what I, if we, like, rebrand MREs and sell them to college students? I feel like that's just Huel. <laughs> bit of a tangent. I drank Huel once, and I felt like I was trying to swallow vomit. I mean, does it taste like something you would imagine called Huel tastes like? Because, like, it, it, like the original Huel, Huel just, like, it, it's essentially just a, sh- a smoothie. But now they have done, like, you know, meal replacements. That's kind of meant to be, like, a soup. And it just, like, looks disgusting. Like, Huel, a portmanteau of human fuel. I cannot imagine something more disgusting to put in your body. I'm going to remarket like the loaf that they give to inmates as punishment as some grind set meal. Like I, I used to work in a pharmacy years ago and for anyone who has or has had a family member or someone they know who has like a long-term illness or is get going through something like cancer treatment, you'll be familiar with these drinks Ensure Plus. They're kind of like oh, yeah. for, fortified little small milkshakes that like are designed for people who have trouble eating or like holding down food or need like nutrient dense stuff and they don't taste bad generally 
Yeah, but they like they're meant to taste like you know they're flavored like chocolate or strawberry. Mm-hmm. It's meant to be kind of this sweet thing, and some tech bros have just rebranded you know nutrient drinks for cancer patients for dudes who don't want to get up uh, out of their coding chair every twelve hours. But they, uh, I've never had Huel or was what was the other one, Soylent or whatever. But like. I can just imagine they taste awful. And if you say that, they'll be like, well, that's the point, bro. Like you just, you just need fuel for your, for your posting brain or whatever. Like uh, just, just eat a, eat fucking food. Like a normal person, eat a banana, eat eat a yogurt. Like it's more, this this shit is more expensive than an actual meal. Eat, eat a yogurt. Like I did before we started recording, but like Huel, it's up there on my hate list with CrossFit. You know, we're building a ranking. I forgot to eat, and now I'm curious of the caloric intake of vape juice. Now, um, speaking of, of, of things that you shouldn't put in your body, actually, the opposite of that, you should put this in your body. Um, Cook was famous, like I said, for having none of the sailors lost his scurvy. And one of the ways he did that was by like sitting down and eating sauerkraut in front of his men to be like, look, I eat it too. But that wasn't enough uh, for a lot of people. Like, this shit's disgusting. Get it away from me. Um, so he would just beat the fucking shit out of them until they agreed to eat the sauerkraut <laughs> and therefore lost nobody to scurvy. It's like, look, I, mean, I tried this the gentleman's way. Now I'm going to do it the Navy way, which is whipping you to shreds until you do what I tell you to do. Like everyone goes on about imagine showing death grips to a Victorian child. Imagine getting one of these guys to eat kimchi. <laughs> Dude, it, it would blow their minds in the best way possible. Uh, it, it would be great. Then came Cook's third and final voyage. Cook used his connections to get out of retirement and back out to sea in order to find the Northwest Passage between the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific by way of the Arctic Ocean. But publicly, that was not the mission. Instead, it was to return our friend Omai back to his home island in French Polynesia, which is today French Polynesia. The guy had been kind of sort of kidnapped back in 1767, and spent the last couple of years doing what we said, not dying of some weird European disease he was not previously accustomed to, and was not ready to go back home. <laughs> On February 2nd, 1778, Cook found Hawaii for the first time, according to him, landing near Waimea on the island of Kauai, where there was a peaceful meeting between the two people, and he was able to trade for food and water. As it was normal, we've talked about in other expedition episodes, like it was most of the time they use these island stops is because like they needed food and water. They couldn't possibly carry everything that they needed. They'd also need like wood because ships sucked and constantly fell apart. Yeah, you're um, you're you're applying the ship of Theseus theory in real life. <laughs> he then left, went around Alaska to find the passage he originally set out for, and then returned nine months later in January of 1779. Now he was doing a deadliest catch in in you know in the fucking eighteenth century. God, that'd be funny. I mean, I can't like so many people die fishing for crabs in the Bering Strait, uh, Bering Sea. Now, imagine how many people would die back then in like shitty wooden boats. Yeah, I mean, like you're a whole crew catching a different set of crabs, but. <laughs> Now, this ended up being a very important time to show back up on the Hawaiian Islands. It was the Makahiki, or the Hawaiian New Year season, that honored both Lono, the high god of the Hawaiian native religion, and to celebrate and honor the yearly harvest. This is where some weird shit comes up. Now, according to historians, not the majority anymore, but for a long time, 
the Hawaiian saw Cook to be a reincarnation or representation of the god Lono himself. Depending on which reason you read, this is because he returned during the festival twice in a row, and according to belief, allegedly, Lono would circumnavigate the islands every year and return during this period. Cook ships had white sails, and Lono was oftentimes depicted as carrying white banners. Furthermore, the place where he landed the second time, the Kealakikua, was the center of political power within the Hawaiian world at the time where virtually every Hawaiian leader would show up during this festival to take part in games and rituals. Or so the common story goes. However, this ignores a lot of facts. For one, Cook wasn't Hawaiian, nor did he speak any kind of Polynesian language, which probably would have been a red flag for any true believers in this religion. Like, why can't our God speak to us? Furthermore, none of the evidence of this comes from actual Hawaiian sources. Rather, it comes from specifically European sources. More specifically than that, Cook's crew themselves, namely one man, William Bly, the future captain of the HMS fucking Bounty, who we have uh, talked about before. Who uh, you are coming on my show to talk about yeah, <laughs> this the, week. The guy who started Incest Island. Oh, uh, like, you know. Pit, Pit Cairn Islands, we're still coming for you, baby. It, uh, I think it behooves a 18th century Age of Sail crew to view themselves as, you know, the white god of the Hawaiian Islands. Yeah, and like I consulted with someone who teaches Hawaiian history at the University of Hawaii about this, and she kind of said, this almost certainly didn't happen. Um, maybe when they saw the ships out at sea, they're like, holy fucking shit, it's Lono? Like, he's come? But then, like, mm. these British dudes who speak zero Polynesian dialects at all come ashore, they're like, nah, it's just fucking Cook again. Like, they knew him! <laughs> it definitely comes from, like, one of the shipmates, like, being in a tavern when they got back to England and be like... Yeah, you know, I sailed around the world and we got to, we came back to Hawaii. They thought I was God, you know, like, so uh, where is your chamber? And, and like, remember, they've met Europeans before. They've met British people before. Other Hawaiians have met Cook's crew. Spaniards have shown up, assimilated in the islands and spread syphilis like wildfire. So it's like, not like this is some weird, never heard of, never seen of thing. Now, like I said, it is possible that people at least at first did see Cook's approach as some manifestation of Lano in human form or some kind of sign for some short period of time. I don't want to discount that possibility entirely, but whatever happened, it's pretty clear that Cook and his crew immediately proved they were in fact not Polynesian gods, but rather fucking assholes on a ship and immediately wore out any kind of welcome or perceived godhood. Yeah, there's just some like dude called Miguel who's been there for 50 years and he's like, Ay, que coño, que asco, get off the island. <laughs> I know these fucking people. They come to my <laughs> they come they, to my village every fucking summer. <laughs> he's like, buenos dias. Uh, you know, welcome to Hawaii. Uh, please, you know, get off the ship. Enjoy some coconuts. Respect the island. Cook looks at him. He's like, "Wait, aren't you guy that fucked my wife in Malaga?" <laughs> <laughs> hey, didn't didn't I see you last time in Andalusia? <laughs> now, 
at first, since there's already some familiarity between the two, they got on doing what they normally did, trading. However, things quickly got dumb. Ships constantly need repair while at sea, and these ships had obviously gone quite quite a distance. Um, they need things break. They need to be repaired with wood. Cook insisted that only a certain kind of wood would do, and specifically, the kind of wooden fence that surrounded the local burial ground called a morai, which was, of course, considered a sacred place where they put their dead. And this is the only wood that they could use. Now, Cook offered hatchets in exchange for the wood, and according to John Ledyard, an American onboard Cook ship, the Hawaiians relented, like being good hosts, but it was very fucking clear that they were very angry. Um, <laughs> like they're like, we're going to accept this fucking Howley's gift, but I swear to God, <laughs> swear to fucking God, bro. Um, now, they further shit on the religion. Uh, by refusing to acknowledge the rank of the local chief known as the Ali Nui. Now, remember, these chiefs were considered a certain level of divine. And by not acknowledging their rank, like, this is like, yeah, fuck your religion, fuck your burial ground. What, what else can I do around here to make you hate me? Mm. Now, for the next 19 days, the men of the HMS Resolution and the HMS Discovery did everything they possibly could to infuriate the people of the Big Island of Hawaii. They took food and water, barely offered anything in return. A new unknown disease swept through the local population, who the Hawaiians rightfully said this had to have come from the Europeans. And then they started giving nails to women to try to convince them to have sex with them, which is something they did on Tahiti and figured it would work here. This infuriated the local Hawaiian population even more. Yeah, no, really good gambas, you know. Yeah. Like when you're in the guest, when you are a guest in someone else's house, you know, take off your shoes, be polite, you know, don't don't, uh, don't offer roofing nails in exchange for a hand job. <laughs> yeah, you know, like be respectful. If you if you want a hand job, at least you know, talk to them first. You know, try and maybe form some sort of connection with them. Don't lead with here. Do you want some nails? Do you want to rub my penis? Hey, baby girl, I had to stop by Home Depot before I came over here. Uh, like, because they had done that in Tahiti and other islands, and they figured uh, all the Polynesians are exactly the same. This will work. Um, this did not go over great. When Then when the ocean current took away a small boat uh, from the resolution, hilariously called a jolly boat, uh, Captain Charles Clerk, captain of the HMS Discovery, accused the local chief of stealing it and then refused to apologize him when it drifted back to shore. Finally, on February 6th, the ships picked up their anchors and fucked off, having pissed off every single person they had come across. Then the two ships got caught in a hell of a storm, breaking the foremast of the resolution and causing them to retreat back into the bay for repairs. Ooh, this is not going to go well. Nobody was happy about the return. Ledyard wrote in his diary, remember Ledyard's the American aboard Cook's ship, quote, Our return to this bay was disagreeable to us as it was to the inhabitants. We were equally tired of one another. They had been oppressed and were weary of our prostituted alliance. It was also equally evident from the looks on the faces of the natives, as well as every other appearance, that our friendship was now at an end and that we had nothing to do but hasten our departure to some different island where our vices were not known. Fuck's sake. 
Yeah, they know they're fucking assholes, too, is the incredible part. Oh, fuck's sake. As soon as they tried to get off the ships, the Hawaiians came out to the bay and began chucking rocks at them, making it clear that they absolutely did not want them there. Mm -hmm. Like, hey, that's the fucking guy who tried to fuck my wife in exchange for some roofing nails. Get out of here. Oh, I hate these guys so much. Don't worry. Justice is coming soon. (laughs) However, for some reason, the men aboard the boats didn't take the hint, and they stayed. Not able to get the things they needed to repair their ship, Cook orders the bay, the main trading hub, for the entire big island. And remember, the big island at this point is the hub of Hawaiian power. And it would remain that way until King Kamehameha moved the capital to Oahu. So that's quite some time from now. Yeah, you know, like, you got a big island, you control a big island, that's more important than smaller islands. Well, well said. <laughs> <laughs> island big, aka, which means power big. So they blockaded the entire bay to force the local uh, chief into compliance, Alanuia. Obviously, the Hawaiians got even madder and soon they are sneaking out into the bay to steal things from the sides of the ship as a middle finger to the crew. Because remember, they they can navigate this bay like the back of their hand on small boats and just rip shit from the sides. Eventually, they snagged a boat from the Resolution, actually stealing it this time, and carried it ashore, hiding it somewhere inland on the island. This is when Cook did just about the dumbest thing he possibly could have done. He decided he was going to kidnap the local chief in exchange to get his boat back. Oh, this is not going to go well. Like one of the be- one of the best seafaring, you know, populations and you think that being what a couple of hundred meters out of the bay is going to save you. Spoiler alert, it does not. On February 14th, Valentine's Day, 1779, Cook took a group of a dozen or so armed marines ashore and marched directly into the nearby village barged into the chief's house and they demanded that he come with them and force them out of the house at gunpoint at that point he began to march him again with a musket to his back toward the beach with the goal of bringing him aboard their ship and forcing the hawaiians to give him back what they wanted and what they stole under threat of execution As they were doing this in the morning, in broad daylight, in the middle of the village, at the chief's house, it did not take long for other people to see what was going on, including the chief's wife, who ran off after her husband, demanding to know where he was going and telling him to come back. A large group of people then began following Cook and his marines with their hostage towards the beach. This included the chief's kids, who, because, you know, their kids and didn't understand what was going on, then sat down inside of Cook's boat that he had took to shore, thinking Cook was going to take them all to his ship in the bay because they had previously done so. Like, Mm. oh, we want to go see the big boat, you know? Mm. They're kids. Yeah. The chief's wife and these children's mother then demanded they get the fuck out of the boats, but being kids, they didn't listen. When that didn't work, the chief's wife told her husband to stop before Cook took the kids too. At that seemed to be what the chief needed to hear. So he's literally just plopped down on the sand, refusing to get up and cooperate <laughs> further. Like, you know, like if the the encouragement of having a musket at your back when there are literally probably what, like 100, 200 people crowding around you ready to, you know, save you is not a great motivator. Because like what? 
you have six muskets or flintlock pistols, you shoot them. What, it's going to take you two minutes to reload them? <laughs> Look, you got them in the first volley, but that's all you're going to get. Yeah. Then a coconut-wielding priest appeared, chanting and singing. Yeah! <laughs> this stopped Cook in his tracks, probably having no idea what the fuck was going on, but when he turned to see the priest doing his best, I don't know, Monty Python horse galloping sound... That is when he realized that there's not just the angry family of the chief confronting him. Thousands of armed Hawaiians were now surrounding the beach. Fuck yeah. At this point, Cook is like, this has spiraled out of control. I can't win this. And he abandoned the chief on the beach, who I assume is still sitting crisscross applesauce, refusing to budge ordered the Marines to hold the Hawaiians at gunpoint and attempted to slowly back away onto their boat. That is when Kanaaina, another chief, ran forward and shoved Cook to the ground just in time for Naua, one of the, the chief's attendants, to jump on top of him and stab him with a dagger. Now, funny story, this dagger he had previously traded from one of Cook's own men. <laughs> then thousands of Hawaiians surged forward, many of them armed with sick-ass weapons known as Leomano, or a club that was aligned with shark's teeth, so you get clubs stabbed at the same time. <laughs> the Marines closer to the boat said, fuck this, jumped on them, and left everybody else behind as a few others managed to open fire before being smash-stabbed to death with club shark tooth weapons of doom kana aina was killed in the shooting as were a few other hawaiians while four marines died before they can get on the boat and you know no one's sure how long it took cook to die but it's thought of as just being pretty immediate uh, <laughs> that's too quick it's too quick for me he got stabbed with one of his own daggers and had his skull caved in by a club lined with shark's teeth Oh. I hope it was worth the boat, bro. Yeah, getting beaten to death with clubs and coconuts. Fuck yes. This is what he deserves. This is where things get kind of strange. William Bly, noted asshole, which we've talked about, said in their intense hatred and savagery, the Hawaiians carried bo a Cook's body ashore, where they then cut it to pieces. Well, okay, this did actually happen, but not for the reason that Bly or most Europeans thought. Despite how much of an asshole Cook was and how much the Hawaiians fucking hated him at this point, the Hawaiians still respected Cook as a leader and gave him the funeral rites and rituals that they would have given to one of their own of a similar rank. The bones were thought to contain their energy, or mana, which would then be turned into a religious icon, not unlike the saints' bones were treated during the Middle Ages in Europe. Though eventually the Hawaiians did give the bones back to the British so they could chuck them into sea for traditional naval burial, which is considered more respectful for some reason. Yeah, you know, the Polynesian war culture in terms of like when you defeat your opponent is generally like you treat the, the remains of your opponent with the same respect that you would want your body treated. So like, yeah, exactly. it's, not, it's not surprising that, you know, they at least like, all right, you can have the bones back. We don't care anymore. Fuck yeah, off. They would have done the exact same thing to their own Alianui. Like, this is what we do for people in a position of leadership. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm sorry, you fucking Puritan just want to huck his body into the sea for some reason. 
who's the real savages? That's the question. The British. The answer to that question is always the British. <laughs> For then and forevermore. Of course, the British would not take any of this lying down or accept that, yeah, Cook earned his death. Ships returned to Hawaii and shelled the islands in revenge, killing dozens of islanders. Nobody's entirely sure how many. Now, Cook's memory lives on in ways that most other monsters from history would be jealous of. He has five islands named after him, four mountains, several glaciers, a minor planet, and a crater on the moon. But of course, the cherry on top of all of this is the town of Captain Cook, Hawaii, on the big island named after him. And, oh. and there's also the Captain Cook Sugar Company, who opened a company post office there in the early 1900s. Yeah, like, honestly, I think... There's very few people who have contributed more to bad history and bad historical research than Captain Cook. Now, you're probably wondering, there must be some kind of movement to rename the town of Captain Cook or something in Hawaii. And there is. There is a movement to change the name of the town, with people rightfully pointing out this was a town with its own name and history before it was renamed after Cook. While, of course, others are claiming this is another example of cancel culture... Though the man claiming that is a Republican representing a the town of Hawaii Kai, Gene Ward, who is a white man born in Ohio. So why is it always Ohio? Why is it always the Midwest? It's always it's always Ohio. And that is, that is the death of Captain James Cook. How, how, how you feel? Uh, Joe, I've had this drop sitting on the deck for months, and all I gotta say is R.I.P. Captain Cook, you fucking bitch. Rod in peace. Your fish food now, motherfucker. Woo! R.I.P. Captain Cook. Rest in peace. Rest in pieces. Rest in pieces and piss. Um, there's, there's also like a monument to him. Uh, in the general vicinity of where he was killed, which I haven't yeah. seen. I haven't spent a lot of time on the Big Island when I live mm-hmm. in Hawaii. Um, it's, it's, it's an interesting episode of history because like, it can be seen as a way for Hawaiians to reject uh, what almost certainly would have turned into a, a more colonial enterprise than the, the islands experienced until sometime later when the Americans showed up. And then it's also treated as like, look at this brave adventurer, uh, you know, who got his ass smashed in with a fucking shark tooth club. For me, it's a great example of colonial hubris blowing up in some asshole's face, which is why how we find it so funny. Now, Tom, we do a thing on this show called Questions from the Legion. If you'd like to ask us a question from the Legion, donate to the show. Ask us on Patreon, through DMs, through Discord, loaded into a large wooden ship, and float it up to Tom's house where he will then smash your skull in with the Irish version of the shark tooth club. I assume that's just that's just a hurling yeah, club. Or alternatively, like, you know, put it inside a coconut and like beat Joe across the skull with it. I agree to your terms. <laughs> Today's question is uh, actually kind of simple. How are you guys doing? Uh I I I'll give it a five out of ten, you know. Had a good holiday, but, you know, uh, the weather's shit. It's cold. Uh, if you listen to last week's episode, mental health isn't great, but we're getting through it. I'm not not saying doing the, like, dudes, it is what it is, but, you know, 
doing everything I can to feel a little bit better. Uh, yeah, same. Um, I am, you know, I'm having fun working um, on uh, a, a book series that should be out soon-ish. Um, I'm almost done with that. And I know it, it probably sounds kind of counterintuitive to say that, like, I'm having fun at work and that is good for me. But when you write for a living, whether it be for this podcast or books, after a while, like, I, I love doing the show. I don't want anybody to think like, oh, Joe's, you know, hates showing up to work every day or whatever. I don't. I love doing the show. I actually never have a problem writing a script for the show because I get to write about things that are interesting to me. But on the author side of my life, you know, what can start as an idea that you really want to do eventually tapers out very quickly when you're writing several hundred thousand words. Um, I mean, and it, this and it grinds to a halt sometimes. This kind of sounds like a, a, a problem of your own making, Joe, for agreeing to write three books in a year. For the second year in a row. Um, <laughs> and that is 100% true. I look forward to finishing the series and not doing that again in 2024. Um, I My goal is to finish the series on a high note and then try to... Just kind of do something for myself, not work on a contract, um, just write for fun again, um, because I love writing. It's like one of the best stress relievers in the world outside the gym for me. And that has kind of slowly eroded away over the last couple of years. And I've just been grinding out constantly. So I have to like finding fun again um, in in writing is is very important to me, which I never have writing scripts for the show. Like I, It's always a good time because I always look what I get to write about. Um, but you know, writing several hundred thousand words of a series that you originally didn't necessarily want to do. Um, it's a great to, vote of confidence for new books. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think I've done a lot of good work in them, but I pitched the idea as a single book. However, I already had under contract that I would do a series that I had forgotten about. Hey, um, look, the only person who enjoys writing at that pace is Stephen King in the eighties. And you want to know why he enjoyed that? cocaine yeah the same reason anybody enjoys dance music um but you know i it's not that i don't enjoy writing these books it's that at a certain point you kind of feel like you're slamming your head against the wall yeah and you even you could be writing some of the greatest things that you've ever written uh and but that stops being fun it stops being a stress reliever and i you know between the gym and uh, writing, like those are my two main outlets for stress relief, and I guess you could call it self care. And over the years, I've kind of let one of those turn into work, and it's not a good way to 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 do something. So I'm doing better, um, even if I did forget to eat before recording today. But that does happen. Um, so yeah, that's that, that's how I'm doing. I don't know if I answered the question correctly. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> you're you're doing you're doing. I am existing. So, Tom, thank you for joining me today. That is a podcast. Plug your show. Listen to Beneath Skin, the show about the history of everything culture, the history of tattooing. If you enjoyed this episode, we actually did, I think it's in our first five episodes we ever did last year, um, about Captain Cook and specifically his relation to the history of tattooing. Um, We have loads of episodes about the kind of strange and like kind of dark history that tattooing has with colonialism. Like we did an episode about um, native Greenlandic tattooing by the Inuit people. We've talked about, you know, 
uh, a little bit about you know tattooing in uh, Aotearoa with the Maori people. Um, we actually have an episode coming out at some stage in the near future with a Maori tattoo artist talking about the history of Tamoko. Um, but yeah, if you like hearing about Captain Cook getting his ass beat, uh, maybe check out Beneath the Skin. And if you wanted, maybe you're a newer listener and you didn't know uh, that we've kind of talked about um, Bly before, go listen to our episode on the Bounty Mutiny and the history of the Pitcairn Islands. It's uh, let you, uh, It'll let you uh, kind of better understand why we are discounting most of what that man says. Um, and if you like what we do here, consider supporting us on Patreon. You make everything we do here possible. Um, $5 a month gets you several bonus episodes a month. It gets you every episode early. It gets you five plus years of bonus content, Discord access, and all sorts of other goodies. And until next time, put teeth in a wooden club and attack Captain Cook.